The Lord calls us to worship today from the book of Psalms, chapter 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing psalms to Him. Talk of all His wondrous works. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face forevermore. Remember His marvelous works which He has done, His wonders and the judgments of His mouth. Amen. created the heavens and the earth, who created us for your glory, that we might sing your praises. Lord, we pray today that you would inhabit the praises and the thoughts of your people as we are gathered here together today as your people, the church. Lord, we ask humbly before you that you would pour out your spirit upon us, that we would see and hear and believe the beauties of the gospel and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes afresh that we might see and behold wonderful things out of your law. And Lord, I pray especially that the Lord Jesus would be beautiful to us today as we sing, as we read your word, as we pray together as your people. Lord, I pray that you would unite our hearts together, even as we pray now the prayer that you taught your disciples to pray, saying out loud, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. This morning for our confession of faith, we're going to recite together the Apostles' Creed. It's on page 845 in the green hymnal if you'd like to look there. I'll begin by asking you, Christian, 
What do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Hear these words of assurance for God's people who look to him by faith from Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder. The rod of his oppressor is in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel for fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Amen. As we continue to worship, please turn in your hymnal to number 467. We will sing together, Wonderful Grace of Jesus.
children can come forward for the children's sermon. Good morning, boys and girls. Good to see you all. Come on, son. I wanted to ask you, has anybody ever worked on grapevines? You ever worked on grapevines? Ever seen grapevines? Maybe, maybe one or two of you. Well, one of the things about grapevines is that you have a main stalk, and then you have pieces that come off of that main stalk. It's, the main vine is called the vine, and then those pieces that come off, you know what they're called? The branches. The branches. Exactly, Kate. They're the branches. So, let me ask you. Do you suppose I would get grapes if I just lopped off one of the branches and laid it in the grass? Just let it sit there all summer... Let it soak up the rain when it came, maybe even just hit it with the hose every once in a while. You suppose I'd get grapes? No. Why not? Why wouldn't I get grapes? I'm watering it. God's putting sunshine on it. Because something would eat it. Something would eat it? Because it wasn't on the vine. Because it's not on the vine. It's not on the vine. I want to share some verses with you from uh, the book of John, chapter 15. And actually, Jesus says this in other places, too. It's not the only place that He says it. He says it in John 8. But here in John 15, He says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in Me, and I in Him, bears much fruit. For without Me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in Me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them, and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you will desire, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. So, in what we just read, who is the vine? God. God is the vine. And who are the branches? We. We are. We are. Okay, and where does the fruit come from? Do you have the fruit in you? One person says, we are we have the fruit in us. Who's the fruit? What's the fruit? Jesus produces the fruit. 
And you know the fruit of the Spirit, right? You know a few of them, right? Love, joy. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. So Jesus produces the fruit. So what Jesus is saying, and it's a bit of a hard saying in the Scriptures, how am I like a, a branch, and how is Jesus like a vine? What Jesus is saying is that if you love Him, then you want to be so close to Him and know His Word. And He promises, if you keep your heart close to Him, He will stay close to you. And he will produce the fruit in you. He doesn't say, you, a branch, make fruit. He says, you stay with me and I'll, I'll produce it in you. So I want to encourage you this morning to think about being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and walking with him. Saying, I'm a Christian, doesn't make you a Christian. Belonging to the Lord Jesus does. So I want to pray for you this morning that as you produce fruit, you would give glory to Jesus. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the gift and the blessing of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thank you for our covenant children this morning, that they are being raised in families and in homes where the Lord Jesus is exalted. And I pray for our covenant children as they seek, Lord, by faith to abide in the vine, to stay with you, that your words might stay in them, that they would walk according to your ways. And Lord, I pray that you would help them to know as they see the fruit of the Spirit coming out of their own lives in the things they say and the way they treat others, that they would give glory to you, not look at themselves in the mirror and say, I'm a pretty good branch, but praise Jesus, I'm in the vine. Lord, I pray that you would give them all joy and delight as they walk in obedience before you. And I pray that you would use our covenant children as a light in this world, that people would see the Lord Jesus in them and want to know, why are they so different? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You're welcome. Do you know who and made it? No. God made it. God made it. God made you. You go back and have a seat with your mama. We were just having a quick clarifying conversation <laughs> about the planet Saturn and the rings and exactly who it is that made it. <laughs> For our responsive reading this morning, we're going to read Psalm 121. It's on page 831 in your hymnal. Psalm 121. I'll begin with the light portion. Please respond out loud together with the bold. Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. Amen. Let's stand together as we continue to worship and turn to hymn number 650 as we sing together. I will sing of my Redeemer.
last week that for our pastoral prayer time uh, in this month we've been praying for Joel Brown, uh, one of our missionaries who is an uh, RUF ministry associate at South Carolina State University. And I ask you to keep him on your prayer list as he anticipates having uh, PCA ordination exams uh, on April the 4th, coming up very soon in just a few weeks here. RUF ministers are uh, full-fledged ordained teaching elders in the PCA And so these are significant trials that he is going through now. He'll be examined very carefully and scrutinized very carefully. So I do want to ask you again to pray for him. But he also sent out a newsletter with some prayer requests, and I wanted to share those with you and and pray through some of these uh, this morning. He asked that we would pray for he and his wife to support each other in the work of RUF, in the raising of their children, that they would be a godly family, and also that they would uh, be good support for one another and part of their local church. They ask that we pray that Jesus would be big in the lives of students on the campus at South Carolina State, and also that the Lord would use RUF in their lives to draw them to the Lord Jesus Christ. I also want to pray this morning for our church family. I have a particular burden on my mind just praying for our own spiritual health, that we would love the Lord Jesus from our hearts, Hearts that He has changed, that He has given us, not because we are better people than others, but because we see the great costly price of the Lord Jesus coming to die for our sins. That we would see the truth, not lies, and that we would behold the Lord Jesus and love Him as beautiful. Let us go before the throne of grace now. Father, I thank You and praise You for this day that You have given us to worship You, to be gathered together as Your people, the church that we are gathered as others are gathered around the world, as the heavenly host is gathered to sing praises to you on this Lord's day. Lord, we thank you and praise you that you have called to yourself men and women, boys and girls, to be your family, and that any who believe in you are made sons and daughters of the living God. Lord, we thank you and praise you for the inheritance that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, today that you would pour out your spirit on us, that you would apply with great measure the beauty of the salvation that Jesus won for us to be delivered from sin and death and from Satan and from sin's power over us that we might be forgiven and cleansed of our guilt. Lord, I pray for the spiritual health of our our church, for our church members, for families. Lord, that we would be people who, who follow hard after you, as your word says in Psalm 63 that we would be close to you as the one who provides for us. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see and behold the truth in your word, but also in ourselves, that if we are not walking in ways that are pleasing to you, if we are only playing a game, wanting to look like a Christian, but not really concerned with loving Jesus, I pray that you would show that to us today. And Lord, help us to see areas of new obedience of new walking with you, areas of our life that are yet to be claimed by your grace. 
because of our lack of obedience and faith. Lord, I pray that you would help us to grow. Grow our faith. Cause us to see Jesus each day in your word. Give your people a desire to read the Bible and to pray and put it on their lips that they would share it with one another, that it would be what starts their conversations and ends conversations. And Lord, I do pray for Joel today. I pray for him as he prepares for these exams, that you would fill him with all the knowledge he needs to do well, that he would be a great representative of your kingdom on the campus of South Carolina State. And I pray for he and his wife and for his children, that you would protect them, Lord, in their family life, in their RUF ministry, and in their church life. Protect them from the attacks of the enemy, the one who would seek to have their faith set aside, that they would only live as a show before others and not really live before you. And Lord, I pray that you would keep their marriage strong. I pray that their children would come to know you at a young age. And Lord, I pray most of all that that they would love the Lord Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name, amen. this morning uh, to the New Testament book of Titus chapter 2. As you're turning in your Bibles, there's a little sign on the door there 
It says, Lord, give me the words to say and give me a nudge when I've said enough. I pray that the Lord honors that humble prayer today. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. This is the timeless, unchanging Word of God. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God abides forever. Today's sermon is entitled Grace and Godliness and is the next in our series, Ordinary Christian Living, where we've been looking at the book of Titus, a letter that Paul wrote to a young minister on the island of Crete, where there were many challenges, young Christians and young churches. Paul wrote this letter to encourage Titus to keep a careful watch over his own mind and over his own heart, and also a careful watch over what he would teach God's people as God's word. In Titus, godliness is daily practical obedience to the Word of God. Not everyone believed that this was necessary. Some believed if they confessed the Lord Jesus, if they said that Jesus was the Christ, that that was it. They prayed a prayer, they raised their hand when a minister said, Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? And that was, that was it. I'm secure. And now I get to move on and live the rest of my life for me. I have eternal security. In fact, there were some who claimed to be Christians who are now defining in our own day that sin is not what the Bible says, but sin is actually what I say it is. What I think about it. How it makes me feel. and What other people seem to like or think. Even people who proclaim to be ministers of the gospel are taking this kind of idea as well. And saying that sin isn't what God says it is. Sin is what offends me. And something that I do or something that you do. And I think a story illustrates this, a news story. In a day when godly people were being assailed by those who wanted acceptance of the church at at any cost, they openly embraced a, a love of debauchery and especially sexual indulgence and resulted in being barred from the Lord's table at the local church. So they decided to go and appeal to civil authorities and secured an order that the minister had an obligation civilly to give them the Lord's Supper. So a group of them showed up at the church on September the 3rd. They demanded to receive the sacrament. And the minister, in fear and trembling, even though he was threatened with violence, draped his body over the Lord's table. He said, these hands you may crush, crying. These arms you may lop off. My life you can take, my blood is yours to spill. You may shed it, but you shall never force me to give holy things to the profaned and dishonor the table of my God. That sounds like something we could read on the newspaper today or see as an update on our phones about something happening in the world. And yet, this is a controversy. It is a controversy of the heart and the consciences of people who want God on their own terms I just read to you the story of John Calvin in Geneva, Switzerland in 1553. That sounds like something you could have set aside on the newspaper last week. It is not a a new controversy in the hearts of people to want God on their own terms, to be able to define sin for what they say it is, and to take God's word and say, well, I like this part and that part, but I don't care for this one, so I'm going to set it aside. And this was the kind of thing that Paul was urging Titus 
to be careful about. He had just spent the first ten verses speaking to specific groups of people. Titus, be sure to teach the godly older men this, and the younger men be a good example to them. And teach the older women what it is to believe in the doctrine of God. And that they would then hand down to the younger women, this is how godly people live. And then he says these wonderful words in verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. This is point number one in the sermon this morning. This is the greatest news ever. The greatest thing ever that the grace of God has appeared to all men and it brings salvation. This word appeared is like the word epiphany. That a light has dawned, like in Luke chapter 1 verse 79. The Greeks believed that when the gods came and delivered a special message or gave them some tool that they needed to live in this life, that there was a lightning bolt from heaven and people saw it and there was the gift. This is the kind of language that's being used by Paul. The grace of God like a lightning bolt has been displayed for God's people. After thousands of years and generations of people who lived before God, who were given His laws. They saw Him move on the holy mountain. And they wandered in the wilderness. They took God's Word. They broke God's laws. They broke their own hearts over it. They heard the prophet say, Repent, the day of heaven is coming. God is coming. A Messiah is coming. He will deliver His people. And they waited and watched. They hoped the Messiah would come. And as you get to the New Testament, after 400 years of silence, it says that the one who existed before all the worlds began has come into the world. The one who made it has come and they did not know him. They did not love him. But to any who believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God. Here, Paul says that grace has now come. This is a declaration about all of humanity. Without any distinction, there is no exception. Everyone is in this place of sin because they fell when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. All people, you and I, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, your neighbors and your family, your friends, people that you rub elbows with in the store, your co-workers are lost in sin, the Bible says, entirely corrupt because we have broken God's holy laws. And we are under God's wrath and curse on the way to hell for all eternity apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And God who is holy and righteous, who is high and lifted up, who is loftier than our highest thought, had no obligation to do anything. And yet He does. According to the Scriptures, it says that He promised God's people in the Old Testament that He would send a Redeemer. He chose mercifully To make a way of salvation by free grace through the one that he called the chosen one, the Messiah, the special messenger of God. And now, after many, many years and generations of people who longed to see the Messiah, prophets who said he's coming, don't hesitate to believe the promise of God. And yet generations of people fell and died, having never seen the promise. And yet Titus gets these words from Paul. He's now been revealed. The Messiah has come and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no one, no matter how great their sin, regardless of their race, their class in society, the size of their bank account, or even their gender, male or female, who will not be saved by believing the gospel message of Jesus Christ. It is without distinction. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, confess Him as Lord, you have a home in heaven. 
If you repent of your sins and lay them aside, you have a hope and eternity is yours in the presence of Jesus. And you will receive beauties beyond anything you could ever imagine. And you will see him as he sees you. And yet there are still, after hearing that wonderful message, that people who are lost in bondage and in sin, not only have we broken God's laws, but something broke in the garden, and now we are enslaved to sin. We no longer have a choice. We're not free to stop sinning apart from God's grace. You can clean up your life all that you want and change your behavior however you would like. But it does not do anything to the bondage of sin in your heart. Only the grace of Jesus does that. And yet we still object to it. We still say, I don't know if I believe that. In fact, I'm not that bad and I do pretty good things. And then we can sit back and say, well, what's your motive for doing these good things? For whose glory are you doing good things? And if you say that you can do good things according to Jesus' definition of good, are you denying the inner corruption of your heart? Not that you can't stop doing certain other things, but are you saying you really can do good things according to Jesus' standard? In Proverbs chapter 15, verse 8, it says that the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. So that people who who don't know the Lord Jesus, who haven't trusted in Him, who seek to try to earn heaven by doing things, it says that their sacrifices are an abomination to God. And when you hear that word abomination, it means that He detests them. It's not something that He's sort of inclined to and sort of not. It's actually pretty conclusive. It's not that you're almost there if you had just a little more help. If Jesus could give you a boost you would actually be doing good works. He's saying, no, they're totally corrupt. You actually aren't close to the line of righteousness and holiness. You're missing it entirely. In Isaiah 64, verse 6, not just talking about our actions, but also about our hearts, he says, but we all are like an unclean thing, and all of our righteousness are like filthy rags. Our iniquities are like the wind. They take us away. They take us away from the presence of God. They take us away from the possibility of doing good or anything right. And others of us might hear of the good news of the gospel, of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can be saved from our sin and given a home in heaven and say, I'm sorry, but that's so close-minded. Here in the 21st century, why aren't Christians of all people more open-minded and more tolerant? And don't you understand that that might be your truth? That might be good for you, but I have my truth and what I believe. And yet Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Meaning, there's no other doorways into heaven. There's no other doorways to receiving forgiveness for sins. There's no other cleansing that can be done to give you a new heart. If you try to go without Jesus, you will suffer forever. The wrath and punishment of God that is due your sin. John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. And he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You have to ask yourself the question. And think about it for just a moment logically and reasonably. When Jesus came and made those claims, if it's possible for salvation to be won by any other means, then what Paul is saying here in Titus chapter 2, is it really good news? Is it really good news if you and I can earn heaven? If the the way that I treat my wife or my children, the way I do my business deals, if I do those with some sense of ethical goodness, if I don't cheat people, if I try to do other things that are nice and good and, and right, 
And I, I try to serve other people. If that's the way that I earn heaven, how is Jesus coming good news? How is it actual justice? If there's salvation any other way, then why did Jesus come? Why did he come at all? It was unnecessary. Other people reject the gospel and say, but God is love. He won't judge me. After all, he owes me love. And our society has been told, and I think there's culpability among our preachers for saying this, and our seminaries for teaching preachers to say it. God is love. He's not going to judge you. God is love. He grades on the curve. It sets God's love and His justice at odds. And in fact, the Bible says everyone will get justice. No matter who you are, everyone will get justice. And there was actually only one person who never got justice for what he did, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He never broke one of God's laws. In fact, it says that he kept them all without sin. And yet he was the one who died for his people. If anyone wants to talk about injustice, it's the Lord Jesus who got it, not you and me. We deserve hell. If any of us get heaven, it's because of grace and mercy. If any of us get in, it's because God condescended to you and to me and to someone who would say, God won't judge me. This God that you're talking about is not the God that I've heard about. It's not the the God of love and and care and concern and patience and long-suffering with sinners. And yet listen to these words from Isaiah 65, verses 11 and 12. But you are those who forsook the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for Gad, an idol, who furnish a drink offering for many, another idol. Therefore, I will number you, this is God speaking, I will number you for the sword. And you shall all bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes, and chose that in which I did not delight. That is a God of judgment. That's a God of serious, of serious metal. He is saying, I am coming to bring judgment. And if you are not hidden under the shadow of the wing of the Savior that I have sent, then you will spend eternity in hell forever. You can object, God won't judge me, but the God of the Bible says that He will. And it will be perfect and exact, and it will be justice. Holiness and righteousness will sit and kiss one another, the Bible says. Or maybe another objection, God loves me just the way that I am. And I think this is some of the objection in the book of Titus, and I believe it's some of the objection in our day as well. And I I fear it's crept into the church. Not necessarily Lebanon, but the church at large. Well, God loves me the way that I am. I don't have to change. It's salvation by free grace after all. What are you trying to say? Something has to be different in my life. Jesus died on the cross. I said I believe it. What more do you want from me? I've confessed Jesus. But in Romans chapter 5 verse 20, and maybe those who would seek to twist the Scriptures would even use this, And say, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. You see, if it wasn't for my sin, grace wouldn't have come. And so I'm actually helping the cause because of my sin. And then Paul goes on to reason in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And do you remember how he responds? May it never be. Why would you who died to sin continue to live in it any longer? And yet, we see in our own hearts... And certainly in the hearts of people around us. That there is a desire to indulge everything about us. And to serve ourselves and set God aside. 
It's okay to believe in Him, but it has no impact on my daily life whatsoever. And how could you, of all people, ask me to give up something? And why is it that you want to pick on my desires as the ones that are bad? They're my desires. I belong to Jesus. I now have freedom. All of those laws that God's people were to keep in the Old Testament, those were set aside when Jesus came. I believe in Jesus. I no longer have to walk according to any man's laws. There are no longer any things that I have to keep in order to show that I belong to the Lord Jesus. And yet, in the book of James, he asks a question. Show me your faith without your works. Is it real faith? I'm not saying that there is a works-based salvation way to get into heaven. But he says, show me your faith without your works. And I'll show you my faith by my works, for faith without works is dead. That's the heart of the issue here in the book of Titus, where he's speaking about grace coming and salvation appearing to all men. Because if you say you belong to the Lord Jesus, if you have seen the Lord Jesus in the gospel, then something changes in you. He gives you a new heart. He gives you new desires. And so to say this is how we should live, the grace of God, it says in verse 13, actually teaches us. The grace of God is what draws you along. It instructs you in the faith. The grace of God is what leads you day to day. It's not your willpower to be able to say, no, I won't drink that anymore. Or no, I won't smoke that anymore. I won't take these pills. I won't treat people this way. I won't spend my money only on myself. It's the grace of God has done something in me. It's training my heart. And though I cannot understand it, I have new desires and a new heart. There are affections in me that I cannot explain. And yet they are what drives me. I love the Lord Jesus. I love His people. I love being in His presence. And I love singing about Him. These are things that we don't produce in ourselves. You can't work them up. And so I believe we've been sold a bill of goods. If you've been sold the idea of cheap grace. If you've been sold the idea that you can have salvation. Without truly truly bowing your entire life to the Lord Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German clergyman. In the time of World War II. He ultimately sacrificed his life for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. He named the name of Jesus and they killed him. He said this about cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Because if Jesus isn't living and incarnate, He has no claims on my life. But if I can just be free because He offers forgiveness, if I can go to heaven because someone told me, if I raised my hand, if they dumped me under the water, if I came to church every Sunday, if I shook the preacher's hand and put a little money in the plate when they passed it, I could go to heaven. But cheap grace is no grace at all. Bonhoeffer went on to say that cheap grace is what we bestow on ourselves, and it doesn't include Jesus. And I ask you today, dear believer, dear Christian, dear young people, dear children, do you know the Lord Jesus? Not did you do those things. Do you know the Lord Jesus? Has He captured your heart and captured your life and given you new affections and shown you Himself? And is Jesus beautiful to you? 
We say in the Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? And our young people know it. Our young men know it. They share it on Monday night at Men's Bible Study. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. How can I say I'm a believer if I never glorify God in my life and if there's nothing that shows I enjoy Him from day to day? I don't mean that you don't have bad days and that there aren't times when you have questions and doubts in your heart, but I mean the overarching theme of your life is more about you than it's about Him. How can I say I love Him and I belong to Him if that's me? I believe verse 12 in Titus chapter 2 is about doing something by the Spirit of God according to the grace of God that you and I can't do on our own. Verse 12 is not possible without the Spirit of God working in you. Because the grace of God is teaching you to do something by the Spirit of God. The the Spirit is teaching you to say no to sin by faith and to say yes to Jesus in joy. I believe that's what verse 12 is about. It's not the easy believism that says, I'm forgiven, thank you very much, I'm going on my way. But actually, the grace of God moves in the life of a believer, not just a sinner, not just someone who doesn't know the Lord. The grace of God is what moves in your life every day. It's why you open your Bible. The grace of God brings salvation and the forgiveness of sins, but it also gives us new freedom to now follow God. It doesn't take away your holy obligations. It now makes it possible to do them. When Jesus came, He didn't say the law is now over. All of those things, you couldn't do them. So just believe in me and everything will be good between you and God. He said, now you can actually follow them because I'll put my spirit in you. I'll show you how to walk in them. I'll give you hope and faith. God's grace reorients everything about us with respect to sin. So that we come to resent the corrupting filth that we see in our hearts and on our hands. It doesn't give you a complacent attitude about sin. It breaks your heart because you know it breaks the Father's heart. Because He sent Jesus to cleanse you. Not just the things that you do on the outside, but the things that you think that you fear to ever tell anyone. And the things that you do in secret that you think no one knows. In fact, if you're not being taught by the Lord, if there aren't things in your life that the Holy Spirit is not putting His finger on and saying, no, you can't. A child of God doesn't act this way. I'm training you. I'm showing you how to live. If that's not happening in your life, and if you don't have a holy hatred over your sin, you should sit with the Lord Jesus in His Word and say, am I truly saved? Do I really belong to Him? Because He hates sin. The Bible says He came to destroy the works of the devil. And that's our sin. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 and 10, it says, For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son He receives. He disciplines us for our profit that we may be partakers of His holiness. Christians can therefore expect not to prosper in sinful ways. Since God has become our Father, He will not permit us to enjoy sin as though we were unbelievers and not part of His covenant. When God makes you part of His family, He brings you in. He disciplines you as a father would His son, or as a father should His son or daughter. If they walk in ways that are not pleasing to God. And I want to say, as we look at these scriptures, particularly the instructions in verse 12, and as I thought about being Christian families, This right here is where I believe our duty as parents centers. Yes, you should teach your children to be respectful. You should teach them how to handle their money, how to know how to act in public when they're around other people.
But one of the things that you've got to teach your children is what to do with the sinful desires of their heart. Where do I go with them? There are things in me that I want and I have no power to say no to. There are places I want to go and I truly want to go there even though I might say I belong to the Lord Jesus. I want to go here. How are you teaching your children and your grandchildren? This is what you do with the sinful desires of your heart as a believer. You're supposed to say no to certain things and yes to other things. And I have a a burden this morning that we hear that as parents, not as guilt and not a message of judgment. But don't forget these things. The most important things. Where do I go with my ungodliness? Where do I go with worldly lust? I go to the Lord Jesus. I don't hide them and put them in a corner, put them in a closet or cover them up with some good work so other people won't see them. I take them to the cross because Jesus died for them. I take them to the cross because Jesus delivered me from them. I no longer have to walk in them. Grace works from the inside out in verse 13. He changes our mind. It renews our thinking. Romans chapter 12 verse 2. In verse 1 he says, don't be conformed to the world. Submit your bodies to the Lord as a living sacrifice. In verse 12, be transformed in the renewing of your mind. If you're walking with Jesus, if you belong to Him, if you say, I'm a Christian, then this book is your best friend. You read God's Word. You love God's Word. You hide it in your heart that you won't sin against Him. Your mind needs it. It desires it. I have to have it. He died for me. He's my joy. It's my joy to live for Him. I have a sincere desire now that I never had before, but I want to please Jesus. Not so He'll accept me, but because He already has. I'm part of His family. It says denying ungodliness and worldly lusts in verse verse 12. To deny means to renounce, to walk away from, to say, that can't be part of my life. And you don't do that just one time. You don't do that just one time. You do it every day. Otherwise, you live for yourself. You indulge every, every pleasure you want to have. Ungodliness means rejecting sinful patterns in your life. You have to commit with the Lord's power by His grace. I'm not going to walk in that anymore. I'm a new man. I'm a new woman. I can't. But even more to the godless mentality that would say, I can live as I want to, call myself a Christian, but have no regard for God. I can ignore Him in my life. And I don't have to take into account day to day. I do my business with Jesus on Sunday between 11 and 12 or 12.15 if the preacher goes long. It also says that we deny worldly lust. This is the entire thought pattern and value system of the wicked world that we live in. Everything about what you hear on TV and hear in, in TV shows and music, everything that exalts sin and self and wickedness and Satan that says, no, it's okay if you feel that way, if you want to do that then do it. Discover who you are. Find out what you love and what you like. Your sexuality is is your choice. Because we've thrown off our identity in Christ. We don't have an identity. We're searching for it. We need to find it in our money, in our sex, in our pleasures, and everything else. Everything's to be indulged. Nothing is untouchable. And people in that kind of world are only a means to an end. Nobody has honor or value. Nobody can demand anything from me. I'm the measure of all things after all. And I live for my own satisfaction. That's what the world says. And God's Word says you throw that off. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Abstain from worldly passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God. Glorify God with your body. 
Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21 say the works of the flesh, and then it lists them out in case we needed a catalog. And I think some of us are thinking when it gets to the end, why did he name this, that, or the other? Why did he leave out my pet sin? He's not giving an exhaustive list. He's representing what it is in our hearts that rages against the Creator God. He says that these are the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger and rage, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Just to help those of us who want to complete this. Because I could check all of those off. I think it's no mistake at all that Paul uses sexual sins as a measuring stick for whether or not you believe in the living God. Whether or not you know Jesus. Because if you are lackadaisical, if you give yourself room and grace, and you say, well, it's okay to sin here, it's private. Nobody sees what I do on my phone or in my basement. And by the way, I'm a, I'm a free person, I have rights. He knows that's the inclination of our hearts. We want to hide, we want to be away. We've been doing it since the Garden of Eden, in fact. And it's no coincidence that Satan uses these thoughts of the sexual revolution and personal expression in finding myself He's so good at using old tactics, he doesn't have to come up with new ones. I mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeffer and cheap grace. I want to speak with you for just a moment about costly grace. He says, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all of his goods for. It's the kingly rule of Christ. For whose sake a man will pluck out an eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is real grace. Cheap grace is just a counterfeit. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again on our knees every day, brothers and sisters. It is the gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock or a woman must knock. Such costly grace is grace because it calls us to follow And it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life. And it's grace because it gives man the only true life there ever is. It's costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of His Son. You were bought with a price. You are precious in His sight because He gave up His only begotten Son. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for you and me. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for your life. Have you ever walked away from anything and said, that's too much? I can't buy that. I can't afford it. God didn't do that with you and with me. I'll send Jesus. The cost is too high. But He delivered Him up for us all. He turned His Son over to sinners who would brutally beat Him who would laugh at him and jeer at him, punch him in the face, stick him with a a spear in the side and crush a crown of thorns on his head. Costly grace is the incarnation of God in the person of the living Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope that you hear me today, not a voice of condemnation, but a voice of seriousness. It's one thing to come to church. It's another thing to play church, to play the Christian, but to play the Christian is to be a fool. To know the Lord Jesus Christ, that is grace. To walk with Him, to love Him, for Him to be your highest pleasure, your highest joy. I'm not trying to be a Christian. I am a Christian by God's grace. 
And He pours out love in my heart for Him. I don't work it up. So I pray in your hearts, dear believer, today, you do business with Jesus as we pray in just a moment. And as you give, don't give to salve your conscience. Give because you have been given everything. The riches of heaven are yours. And you have an inheritance. One day you will go home to be in heaven. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your word, for the grace and godliness that we see and know. There are generations of Christians who were no worse than us and we are no better than them who looked to the promise and never knew what it meant that Jesus would come. And as we think about celebrating Easter, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see through things that would cause us to be distracted from seeing Jesus. Lord, I pray that in all of our traditions that we would enter into the season of what it means to celebrate Easter. That we wouldn't think about meals and other things necessarily, but we would remember the great costly grace that Jesus came to bring us. And Lord, I pray for those in this room who may feel a weight of, of burden because they look at their life and they say, I don't measure up to this. I might as well give up. I pray that you would encourage your people, Lord, that if they have any inclination in their mind at all, any hatred of sin, they should rejoice because it means your spirit is working in them. And I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us to walk with you, to talk with you, that you would open our eyes that we might see the Lord Jesus and him as beautiful. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond to God's word together by standing and singing number 465, Marvelous Grace of Our Loving Lord.
seated as we take an offering to the glory of God. Father in heaven, we thank you for being able to give back to you a portion of what you have so richly and bountifully given to each of us. Though we may not be the richest people in the world, we have much more than many people in this world. And we pray, Lord, that we would not be ungrateful before you, but offer back to you in a heart of humility, just a part of how you have blessed us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be cheerful givers. And that we would also be people who trust you as we give. That you will continue to provide as you have promised in your word. It says in the Psalms, I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. Help us to believe by faith today that you are the one who provides for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Receive the benediction of our Lord. Now the God whose affection never cools, whose attention never wavers, and whose arm never relaxes, and whose grace never fails toward you, rescue you from every evil attack and bring you safely to His heavenly kingdom. Amen.